I suppose it would be polite to at the very least say good morning. Good morning. Agony. Extreme physical or mental suffering. The final stages of a difficult or painful death. Synonyms would include anguish, torment, pain, torture, suffering, agony. My feet are itchy, but it tickles when I scratch. No, too dramatic an introduction? Okay, I thought it was funny. Agony. (laughs) Those moments of indecision before leaping into a belly flop contest. It's answering the call of the activities director, thinking, yeah, this sounds like fun. And then standing on the chair at the poolside, staring at the cold, hard reality of the water's surface tension. Agony. The hand wringing, the obsessing over the details, and the butterflies in the pit of your stomach before you ask someone out on that first date. Or the wondering and the pondering and the weighing of all the what-ifs before asking someone to commit a whole lifetime to you filled with unknowns. Agony. Thinking you know someone really, really well and finding out in a time of deep need that you really don't. Agony. Not knowing how in the world you preach about God who is divine and all-powerful and all-present And all-knowing in agony. Would you pray with me? Lord God, this morning as we come before you, and we meet you in the garden, and we meet you as you stand before the mob and in the midst of the mob, I pray for you to meet us here. I pray, Lord, that you would... Give us hearts to hear your word and and to, uh, to wrestle with who you are. Um, in our life and to wrestle with our own agony, to wrestle with our own life before you and before the world. Pray these in Jesus' name. Amen. We're in Matthew 26 this morning. If you'd like uh, to turn there, that'd be great. We're going to start in uh, verse 36. Then Jesus went with his disciples, to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to them, Sit here while I go over there and pray. He took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with him, and he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Going a little further, he fell with his face to the ground and prayed, My father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me. Yet not as I will, but as you will. Then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Could you men not keep watch with me for one hour? He asked. Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the body is weak. He went away a second time and prayed, My father, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken away, unless I drink it, may your will be done. When he came back, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. So he left them and went away once more and and prayed the third time, saying the same thing. Then he returned to the disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Look, the hour is near, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. 
Jesus, the Son of God, has uncanny foresight. He knows what is coming. And yet, here in this text, he experiences extreme anguish and torment. Just last week, we explored how much care and forethought Jesus put into his final meal with his disciples. It was a Passover meal, an annual event in a Jewish family. But in this particular case, prepared at a particular place and in a particular way. Jesus sends his disciples into a city to follow a particular person that they haven't seen before, to a house they haven't gone to before, to tell a man they haven't met before they need his upper room to prepare the Passover meal. Jesus has pretty uncanny foresight. Jesus, we learned last week, is eager to celebrate the Passover with his closest 12 companions, and yet he knows it will not end pleasantly. Jesus has told them he will suffer and die. Jesus has told them that one of them, sitting at the table, will betray him. Jesus has told them that they will all, without fail, fall away. Jesus has pretty uncanny foresight. And so as the Passover celebration spills over into the Garden of Gethsemane, they've, they've finished the formal meal, but the party isn't over yet, if you will. They sing a hymn and they go out to the garden. As he goes to the garden... Jesus experiences intense agony. He removes himself from the larger group of disciples and he takes just his closest three friends. He is vulnerable. He's in pain. He begs them to watch and to pray with him. And then he seems genuinely surprised and hurt when they don't. Jesus, who has uncanny foresight and knows what is coming, is in agony. He removes himself from his closest three friends. And he begs God to take the cup from him. It's a symbol that's associated with suffering, with God's wrath. One that Jesus himself has acknowledged, this, this cup, this path of suffering, this is the path of the Messiah. Jesus' anguish is is vivid here as he lays face down, prostrate before God. He's laying on his face in the dirt with the weight of his coming suffering just crushing him. This posture, is it's one of prayer, but it's one of fear. It's a posture of worship, but it's also a posture of submission. With all of Jesus' foresight, with all of his knowing and predicting what will happen, why the agony? This is part of my wrestle with the text today. Why the agony? There must be more going on here than I can see or understand or grasp. Maybe it's the weight of the sin of the world that's already begun to weigh on his shoulders. It's a very interesting image that Jesus is in Gethsemane, the the olive press garden. And so he's probably surrounded at some level with these large stones, uh, enclosures that they'd throw a whole bunch of olives into and they'd place a massive stone on top that would slowly crush and press out all the oil from the olives. And here's Jesus maybe being crushed by the weight of the world as he's about to give his own blood for the forgiveness of humanity. Maybe that's part of what's going on here. Maybe this is Jesus' agony. It's an agony that I don't get because I don't bear the sins of the world. Or maybe, maybe it's the separation from his Father that's coming. Jesus, who has known no sin, became sin, takes all this sin. I mean, I've, I've heard some people describe he, he becomes for the first time in his life separated from his Father because of this sin that he's never born 
before. Maybe that's the weight that is coming down on him. Or maybe, maybe it's a more human dilemma that Jesus faces in this moment. That is, maybe it's that knowing and doing are not the same thing. Talk is cheap. And here it seems Jesus' words, at some level, are sinking into his heart as he accepts still God's will in his life. Notice the way he prays. My Father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me. If it's possible. If it's possible, take this cup from me. I don't want it. Yet, not as I will, but as you will. That's really interesting to me. He's letting the words that he's spoken repeatedly to his disciples, the path that he's seen in the scriptures, sink into his heart. Again, he goes away and prays, if it's not possible. There's a sense of resignation here. If it's not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. And he goes away a third time and he prays the same thing. Apparently, at least at some level, we find Jesus at a crossroads, a point of painful indecision, of agony in his life. The question of another path is a live one. If it's possible, Jesus prays, may this cup be taken. An escape would certainly be possible at this point. There's no mention in Matthew of Judas leaving the twelve. I don't know when that happens in this story. But I know that Jesus takes a large group of disciples out to Gethsemane. And then he takes a smaller group and he removes himself. And then he removes himself again. And he could just kind of keep removing himself if he wanted to. A really poignant portrayal of this particular scene in a a movie I've seen has um, Satan, the the tempter, come back to Jesus and whisper and say, Run! Quick, go away! And Jesus looks over at the the path uh, through the garden. It's all kind of twisty. And all of a sudden it becomes straight. You know, I mean, it's interesting metaphor, but Jesus could have just kept running. Could he not? Jesus, quite frankly, we'll learn in just a little bit. He could have let the disciples fight. Go for it. They were all ready to draw their swords and, and go to town for Jesus. Jesus, as a matter of fact, turns out he didn't even need that. He could have just called on an angelic force to come and wipe out whoever he decided to wipe out. Jesus had lots of options to escape. But he doesn't. He prays not as I will, but as you will. Jesus knows the betrayal and the suffering and the death that will come. And yet, Jesus chooses to follow through. It's not just Jesus that struggles, though. It's the disciples struggle, too. They, too, I think, are in agony. Wavering between an all-out, I'll-die-with-you commitment and running away. Let's think about it. The twelve have spent a long time with Jesus. They've spent uh, a long time, not just with Jesus, but trying to make sense of Jesus. And he doesn't always make a lot of sense. He's a great teacher like Moses. A teacher who mediated God's law and ordered uh, and gave order to a fledgling nation that was just delivered from oppression and slavery. Jesus is very Moses-like. As a matter of fact, one of the first sermons that he preaches in Matthew, he goes, up the mountain. <laughs> Sound like Moses going up? the mountain to get the law. He does a lot of teaching in Matthew. There's five major sections of teaching throughout Matthew. Sounds kind of like the first five books of the Old Testament, or the books of the law. Jesus is very Moses-like. Jesus is a great miracle worker, kind of like Elijah. He feeds the hungry. He raises the dead. He cleanses lepers. 
Quite frankly, he walks right through the middle of hostile crowds. He's popular with the people. He's a wise public debater that can't be stumped. And he's a theologian who is very astute in the ways and the heart of God. He is compassionate. But Jesus is also morbid and pessimistic. Telling his disciples that he who has command over disease will suffer. And that he who has the power over death will die. If I was a disciple, I'd be a little confused too. Don't you think? Peter, the typical disciple in Matthew, doesn't get it. Just a few weeks ago, we saw Peter take Jesus, the Lord, aside and rebuke him. Never, Lord. Not going to happen to you. (laughs) Just before Gethsemane, Peter shoves his foot a little further into his mouth. Even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you, he says. But he can't stay awake for one hour and pray with Jesus. Not to speak of that little denial of Jesus that's coming up. Even after Gethsemane, when Peter lashes out at those who have come to arrest Jesus, he still gets it wrong. Here he is displaying the greatest form of loyalty you can possibly think of. I'll draw my sword. Here I am. I'm going to death with you. Uh, And Jesus says, put it away. Put your sword back in its place. It's not the way of the Messiah. I wonder if this wasn't part of the reason that Judas betrayed Jesus, quite frankly. You see, the disciples had come to imagine Jesus the Messiah in their own image of a Messiah, an earthly king, wise in teaching, deep in faith, strong in battle, who would lead Israel out from under the oppressive regime of the Romans. To them, the Messiah was not a suffering servant, but a strong leader, a role model who would grant them social and political freedom, great prosperity, a return to the golden age of Israel. And so when confronted with Jesus' suffering, the disciples are confronted with their own cheap talk. And here Jesus turns out to be nothing like what they expected the Messiah should and ought to be. And they realize this is really going to happen. And as they realize that, they too must decide. Well, on this side of the story, we know, of course, it's going to happen. Of course, it's going to happen. We can connect the dots because we know the story. The Passover lamb and the lamb of God. I think that was totally lost on the disciples. The cup of the covenant and the new covenant in Jesus' blood. Totally lost in them. Betrayed to resurrection, but raised to new life. We see it, but they couldn't. So when we come to Jesus who says things like, I am going to be betrayed, I will suffer and be killed. And then he says things like, take up your cross and follow me. Why is it so difficult to follow? Why do we find it so hard to forgive our betrayers? Why do we find it so hard to bless and to not curse? To pray for our enemies? Why do we find it so difficult to do good in the face of evil? Again, I wonder if Judas doesn't give us a bit of a key here. I'm not saying that we're willing to betray the Son of God for 30 pieces of silver. Our price would be much higher. But maybe we call Jesus rabbi. Which is a Jewish term of respect for teacher. Seems good enough, doesn't it? Which is exactly what Jesus is. He's a Jewish teacher. He's a proven teacher. Wise in the scriptures from a very young age. But rabbi is not a proper estimation of who Jesus is. In Matthew, Judas only ever calls Jesus rabbi. 
It's a term that is never used by followers or would-be followers of Jesus. But it's used by the betrayer. True followers, or those who are on the road to become followers of Jesus, call him Lord. That is a very different estimation of who this man is. So I think Judas resonates with one of the greatest sins of our age, following Jesus, but on our terms. Giving him a warm greeting, a big hug and a kiss on Sunday morning. But then when our terms aren't met, whether they be comfort or relational stability or or blessings, however you define that, we flee the garden in the agony, deciding to submit to our will and our comfort instead of to the Lord's will. But we see here that's not the way of the Messiah. That's not the way of Jesus. And so to call Jesus rabbi, to call him teacher, to think of him as merely a good man who knows a lot of good stuff, is to misunderstand him. It's to estimate him improperly. Judas, or Jesus rather, does not let Judas or Peter define his messiahship. Jesus doesn't let Peter fight with the sword, and Jesus does not let his own desire to escape suffering trump the will of his father. And so I think today, I mean, what I'm struck with here is if we're to do Jesus' ministry, we've got to do it Jesus' way. And that's not very comfortable, because we like to innovate, and we like to make things a little better, and we like to tweak, a little more efficient, a little more effective, a little less costly. But if we're to do Jesus' ministry, it's got to be in Jesus' way. Because Jesus is not rabbi. He's Lord. And as I look here, I see Jesus in prayer. As a matter of fact, as I look at Matthew, I see Jesus in prayer. He starts there, doesn't he? Praying at his baptism. Going out into the desert. Jesus is grounded in scripture. His responses to the tempter way back when in the desert all come out of scripture. He's deeply rooted in the scriptures. And here, if you jump ahead just a little bit, twice Jesus reiterates in verse 54, he says, how then would the scriptures be fulfilled that say it must happen this way? And again in verse 56, but this has all taken place that the writings of the prophets might be fulfilled. Jesus still at the end of his ministry is deeply grounded in scripture. Jesus moves into community. He calls disciples shortly after he's uh, tempted in the desert. And again, he has a community around him in the garden as he's engaging this most difficult uh, part of his ministry. It's about training, I think. Jesus is a man of prayer. He's a man of scripture. He's a man of community. Jesus' entire life has been bathed with prayer and walked in order to fulfill scriptures. Major theme in Matthew. He's always fulfilling scriptures. Um, For him to submit to his father's will is a difficult and heart-wrenching decision, yes. But it's consistent with the way he's always walked. So we too, when times are good, I think we need to submit ourselves to some sort of training regime. We We need to spend time in prayer. We need to spend time in scripture. We need to spend time in community. I know, these are the things we've been talking about for years. And they're the things we're going to keep talking about for years because they're the things that Jesus did. And if it's Jesus' ministry, it's going to be his way. And we soak ourselves in these things to get ready for that day when we might have to wrestle in agony between our will and the Father's will. It reminds me a little bit of a marathon runner. One of the guys in uh, my life group is uh, a marathon runner. Uh, As a matter of fact, he's like an ultra marathon kind of runner. And so it 
probably shouldn't have surprised me, but it did. When we were at a house, I think we were in Tuscany. I can't remember. We were a long way from his home. And he's like, I'm going to run home. I'm like, really? <laughs> and not only that, he actually told me the route that he was going to run. He said, I'm actually picking that route so I can run on the side of the road in snow that's about yay deep. I'm like, what are you nuts? Let me give you a ride. It hurts just talking to you right now. Um, and I can tell you that had I tried to go and run with him that day, it wouldn't have happened because I don't train. I unashamedly don't train for marathons and I never will. God bless those of you who do. I'm not it. If for some weird reason, God said, Mike, you need to run a marathon. I would not be ready. If I saw that in the cards in scripture, I better start running today. What is probably in the cards for me is something more along the lines of this call to completely surrender my will to the Father's will in a very difficult, costly, life-giving kind of way. And so I better start praying today because tomorrow is going to be too late. And I better start getting into my scriptures today and grounding myself in the will of God that's been revealed through his people and through his son because tomorrow is going to be too late. And I better invest myself in this community today because tomorrow is going to be too late so we stand today or we kneel or we sit or we lay down we face the armed crowd that has come to arrest jesus words of commitment that we've spoken to jesus they echo in our minds but we know that talk is cheap and the armed crowd is very real And so we're left with the decision, the crowd or the cross. Oh, the agony.